This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate all the most important conversations in society, from politics to pop culture and beyond. So anyway, let's get to it. Guys, I'm beyond excited about today's episode. Coming up, we have the CEO of CBN, the Christian Broadcasting Network, Gordon Robertson, joining us to talk about the Bible and American life and culture and much more. But to set the stage for that, I want to talk about chosenness. Probably the most consequential idea that the Bible introduced to civilization is the idea of chosenness, that God chose a particular people, the Israelites, that he took them out of Egypt, that he gave them a set of values and prescriptions to live by. So what does it mean to be a chosen people? Is it like getting VIP access to some special club? Well, one of the first times we encounter the concept in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, when God chooses Abraham to be the father of his chosen people, there's actually a pretty clear explanation. The verse there says, For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do tzedakah umishpat, justice and judgment. In other words, being chosen doesn't confer privilege. It doesn't confer superiority. No, what God told Abraham is that chosenness confers responsibility, a special sacred duty to bring justice and judgment, tzedakah umishpat, into the world. And 3,000 years later, an American Abraham, Abraham Lincoln, referred to the denizens of this country as an almost chosen people, for he knew that, like the children of Israel, whose model we Americans aspire to follow, what binds us together as a nation is not any sense of entitlement, but rather a covenantal responsibility to proclaim liberty throughout the land unto all the inhabitants thereof, and what unites us is a desire to try our best like the Israelites, to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. The idea of a nation can be destructive, even idolatrous, or it can be virtuous. What makes all the difference is that biblical idea of chosenness. What responsibilities do we have by virtue of our history, our past experiences? Because remember, in the Bible, Israel isn't chosen because of something they did. They're chosen for something they're supposed to do. And I'll tell you, figuring out what it is we're chosen to do is probably the most important conversation any society can have. And it's certainly the most important conversation Americans can have right now. And so to help me do that, I figured I'd bring on someone who's dedicated so much of his life to thinking this through, the CEO of the Christian Broadcasting Network and one of the hosts of The 700 Club, Gordon Robertson. Gordon, thank you so much for being here. Harry, it's great to be with you. You know, it's clear that America has always had a special relationship with the Bible. George Washington knew that. John Adams knew it. Alexis de Tocqueville famously chronicled it. But what's the nature of that relationship, right? It's not the Constitution. It's not a legal document, but it is something. How would you describe the nature of that relationship? I think you can't understand American history without understanding the Great Awakening of 1735 a religious revival that swept through all of the colonies all the way from New England down to Georgia, and it transformed a culture. I studied history, American history in college. History was my major, and I'll never forget Edmund Morgan saying, without the Great Awakening, there is no American Revolution. You won't have the fervor to say we want to be a righteous nation. I heard a rabbi about two years ago tell me that America's unique in world history. It's the only other nation other than Israel 
that was established to be a righteous nation. And that really stuck with me. It's curious you mentioned Abraham Lincoln's speech. I was reading that in the midst of all the current political turmoil uh, and actually posted the full text of the speech. He was elected under very strange circumstances, didn't have a majority, but he won the Electoral College. And he went on a speaking tour to visit all the state legislatures and ask for their support. He was sworn in in January. In February, he's traveling to New Jersey. That's right, in Trenton. And he's talking about the Revolutionary War and what would inspire people to put their lives on the line to have that great struggle and that great battle of Trenton. And it was for something far greater than just establishing a nation. Abraham Lincoln was a theologian. The joke was he could make a tax bill sound like words from Genesis. <laughs> and he very carefully chose his words. He was very intentional in saying we're an almost chosen people, that the first always belongs to Israel. But America can lay claim to second as the second country founded. America is great because America is good, that we pursue justice. We love mercy. We love to forgive, but we pursue justice and we act that way and we look for that. I think that's what makes America exceptional and gives us the very firm understanding that our liberty comes from God and we need to protect that and be that. We can't just do our own thing or live our own way or be selfish in our acts either individually or collectively as a nation, we have to be a force for good. Uh, We have to be that city on the hill, which the New England colonies took as their motto. We have to do that, and when we stop doing that is, is when we lose the sense of what it means to be an American. You know, the way I think about it is that it's certainly true that America protects religious liberty, but it is equally true, as George Washington knew, that religion protects American liberty. And I think that's the way of, of thinking about it. And I actually want to come back to something you said earlier, which was so, so poignant, which is that, yes, you know, there is something unique in the American experiment that hasn't been seen since, since Israel. And I think one way of encapsulating that and the reason why, by the way, it's so captured the imagination of great American Jewish thinkers is that America is the only country in the history of the West that actually didn't see itself as replacing the chosen people, but as imitating them. And I think that's been why some of the greatest Jewish thinkers of modern times were so intrigued and even impressed by the idea of America. And I'm thinking particularly, let's say, of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, one of the most noteworthy Jewish leaders in modern history. But I think that's also been part of why Americans in such large numbers in turn feel such an easy, natural kinship with the living embodiment of ancient Israel, the modern state of Israel. So I know you've thought a great deal about this, but is there something to this? What is it about the state of Israel that so captures the imagination of Americans? Well, I I have to think it's inspired by God. Yes. I certainly look at the history of American Zionism. It goes back a long way. And a lot of Americans don't know that history. I'll just bring one nugget. Ezra Stiles, who was president of Yale University. One of my absolute favorites. During the American Revolution, he, he was president of Yale. And he instituted something for all freshmen coming to Yale. And that is they had to learn Hebrew 
And he was so convinced by Scripture that Israel was going to be a nation and there was going to be a restoration of the language. Now, here's a Gentile saying this a hundred years before Ben Yehuda had his great revelation. That's right. And he says, we need to get ready for that. And so let's make sure everyone going through Yale knows Hebrew. You know, two purposes to that, you know, the the drive to go back to the original text, the the realization that happened after the Reformation, and let's get the Bible into the hands of every plowman. Let's let's make sure every person the whole drive for higher education was to be able to read the Bible and, and properly expound on scripture. And if you don't know the original language, you can't be able to do that. And so that was part of it. But another part was uh, Ezra Stiles was looking to the founding, the reestablishment of the Jewish people in the land. And I, I just find that so unique. My own personal story, my, my own family shares in that. And wasn't until fairly late in my life, about 10 years ago, that I discovered both my great-grandfather and my great-great-grandfather learned Hebrew and were fluent in Hebrew wow. and, and could read and preach from Hebrew text, which, you know, America was still in its founding days in, in that time period. But it's even personal to my own family line. And I, I look at that and I'm amazed and have the question, how in the world can that happen? And, and my answer is, well, only God can do that. And why would he put that thread within American history and that legacy of Zionism, even before there were secular Zionists within the Jewish community in Europe, he was putting it within the Christian community in America. I find that absolutely astounding. And then the British, with their mandate, and were unable to fulfill it, and it took a, a Baptist, Harry Truman, <laughs> to finally bring it to be and lead the world in recognizing what happened in Tel Aviv in 1948. Only God does these things. He, he's the one who orchestrates all of that. You know, it really is amazing. I remember the first time that uh, I had a chance to see the journal that William Bradford, one of the first governors of the Plymouth Colony when the pilgrims come over, and you look at the opening of his journal and he's writing out Hebrew exercises. I mean, these are all people who were, who either already knew Hebrew, could read the Bible in Hebrew, were learning Hebrew because they thought it was important for them. So, you know, my question to you is, so many of these figures would have killed to be able to travel to the Holy Land itself, to the land of Israel. I remember even speaking to my grandfather, to other family members who you know, were alive in the early days of the founding of the state. And getting there was really hard. I mean, you'd get there by ship. If someone had a chance to go there, you would come back and in the synagogue the next week, you know, everyone would throw a party and ask you to speak because it was so rare. You know, nowadays, obviously COVID being an exception, but nowadays it's much easier to travel. But I still think that there's something unbelievable about being able to be there in person. And I know you've been there many, many times in person. So what is there that's special about actually being in the land of Israel? Well, my first trip was in uh, 1969, so it was two years after the Six-Day War. Wow. And, you know, many people don't know before the Six-Day War, it was very difficult to actually travel to Jerusalem. It was under the administration of the nation of Jordan. 
You know, it's, it's hard to believe that the Jewish quarter had no Jews. The Jordanians drove them all out, persecuted them. They destroyed all the synagogues. There was um, ethnic cleansing in, in the West Bank and, and in, in Jerusalem. So here I am in 1969, and it's my first trip to the Western Wall. The jubilation was unbelievable. The men dancing with Torah scrolls, the celebration that we're finally here, the prophecies have been fulfilled. We're able to worship, we're able to pray, we're able to do that openly. I I really don't have words for that kind of spiritual moment. I had a spiritual moment, and I had a connection that I really can't describe or even explain. It was an odd sort of rite of passage for me. I was just 11 years old. And what it did, it it put within me a desire for my own children to have the same experience. And so I've I've got three, two girls and a boy. And um, when they turned 12, I did this sort of strange Christian bar mitzvah. (laughs) I was just going to say. (laughs) Where I would travel to Israel with them. I would baptize them in the Jordan River. And then after baptism, we would go to the Western Wall and we would pray. Um, Oddest thing, my son, he's just 12. um, It was such a moment. But as we were leaving, as we were walking away from it, he turns to me and he says, Dad, I can't explain it, but I feel like I'm home. Wow. Um, I still get choked up. I can't explain that. How does a 12-year-old get that kind of feeling and that kind of attachment and that kind of revelation? Um, you know, God, God is at work is, is all I can say. You know, when I think about Something like that, which which to me is not only remarkable in and of itself, but it also speaks to a way in which history has has shifted in quite a remarkable way, which is you think about the interaction between the Jewish community and various Christian communities in the last 2,000 years. My great-grandparents, their grandparents, their grandparents – they would have felt some variety of fear from those communities and certainly alienation from them. And it strikes me that this is the first time in Jewish history and human history where there's actually also organized love of the Jewish people in the Christian community. And and that seems to me like a, a remarkable unparalleled opportunity for advancing world history. What are what are the opportunities that come from that? Well, the opportunities are incredible, but I, I, I understand the history. Uh, I've told people before, and because I believe it, that if I were Jewish, I, I wouldn't trust Christians. Right. The, the history is just too profound and too deep to be overcome with um, you know, proclamations of friendship. It, it, I, I wouldn't trust it. Um, but at the same time, as a Christian Zionist, um, Believe me when I say I love Israel, and I'm not alone in that. Um, there is a movement happening within the Christian community that is truly profound, and it's not just in America. You will find it in Brazil. You will find it in the Philippines. You'll find it in the Christian community of Indonesia. You'll find it in India. You'll find it throughout Africa. 
it's an incredible thing happening where Christians want to travel to Israel to support Israel, to support Jewish Israel. It's unique in history. And personally, I view it as a fulfillment of prophecy. As a Gentile, I'm supposed to come and, and grab your hand and say, please teach me the Torah. That is happening. I am finding myself drawn to Torah study. And I love all the works that have come out of Art Scroll and yes. um, Sonsino Press and, and these others that have made it available to an English speaker. And and like my great-grandfather, now we're talking. I'm, I'm making some <laughs> beginnings to, okay, it's it's about time you learn Hebrew. Uh, and trust me for this going mind and going right to left is hard. <laughs> and what happened to all the vowels? And, and it's just, it's a, it's a difficult exercise for me. Gordon, we're going to study together. I'll tell you that. We're going to study together. <laughs> so, you know, uh, speaking of, you know, one of the great, I think, intellectual innovations of the biblical tradition is how critically important story and the past and narrative is for contemporary society. Like our past imposes obligations on us in the present. You know, I think we live in a culture that doesn't believe anymore in unchosen obligations. And yet that's sort of the the critical lesson of the Bible. So, for example, the Jewish people have a special obligation to promote liberty because we experience slavery in Egypt. We have a special responsibility to stamp out idolatry, both in its pre-modern forms, but also modern forms like contemporary worship of the self because our ancestors were idolaters. So when I think about this in an American context, so I wonder what special obligations do we have because of our history? So protection of religious liberty might be one because of the experiences of the pilgrims who first fled here. Um, but I think that another might be to stamp out racism and bigotry because that is in many ways the American original sin. Like we have a special obligation here because of the obligations that the American past imposes on us, not just because racism is bad, which it is. And I know you've talked about this recently, about the importance of stamping out racism, and you've mentioned Jeremiah 36. So what do you think about this? Do we have some sort of special obligation because of our past in a biblical sense to make this a, a cause of ours? Uh, I think we have a special obligation, and anyone who is a believer in God has a special obligation to proclaim liberty throughout the land. It is curious to me that the American Liberty Bell, uh, which has a crack in it. The Leviticus Bell. <laughs> has the passage from Leviticus, uh, chapter 25, verse 10, proclaim liberty throughout the land. And that was a proclamation to free the slaves. So here as one of our national emblems, we adopt that. And we pay homage to it. I'm not sure we understand why. Um, it's certainly not liberty from taxation to the king of England. That's it is right. liberty for all people. That is the promise of America. You know, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. The irony is those words were written by a slave owner. So what do we as a people do with that and do with that legacy? Uh, you mentioned Jeremiah, um, you know, during the, the, the Black Lives Matter protest and, and particularly George Floyd, and, and I'm just gripped with it. And, and I was in prayer and, and I started reading Jeremiah 34, 17. You have not obeyed me in proclaiming liberty. And it was just 
hit me like a thunderbolt. You know, we look at how Jerusalem was was taken by Babylon and, and the reasons for it. And, you know, growing up Christian, I, I thought it was because of idolatry or I thought it was because of disobeying the commandments. But here it is in, in right there in Jeremiah. The reason is you went back on your promise to free your slaves. And, and I look at America today. Have, have we gone back on the promise of the Emancipation Proclamation? Have, have we gone back on the promise of the Civil Rights Act? Have we gone back on these promises where we made proclamations, we we entered into laws, and we agreed as a people that we were going to do this, and then as a society, we didn't. Do people have liberty? Yes and no. If your skin color is a particular shade, you are more likely than not going to intersect with our criminal justice system. It's an astounding statistic that one-third of African-American males from age 18 to 35 are some way, in some way, involved in the criminal justice system, either incarcerated or under indictment or on parole. Those are incredible numbers. And what do we need to do as a culture to change that? When you look at our poverty statistics, it's obvious there is no economic freedom for certain aspects of our culture. And what do we as a people do about that? And how do we provide the basics of life and the basics of nutrition and proper education? I've been working in some of the inner city neighborhoods here in in Norfolk, Virginia, for several years now, working with United Way. And these aren't easy problems to solve, and you don't wave magic wands or pass magic bills to change it. You know, this kind of poverty with people, whole families living on less than $16,000 a year, what does that mean for nutrition? What does that mean for education? What does that mean for opportunity? These aren't things that we're going to solve in an instant, but we need to have the resolve as a people that we are going to solve them. I don't want my children and my grandchildren to inherit a culture that is prone to violent outbursts because of the inequality within our midst. What can we do to create equal opportunity? What can we do to create equal access? And how can we work together as one to say, it's unjust just because of your skin color to be born into this kind of condition. It just, it's not right. And let's declare liberty, and let's work to liberty. You know, is this perhaps a reason? I mean, that was in- in- incredibly well said. Is, I, I think is, I got preaching there. Well, that, this back. well, this is good faith ever. This is a show for that. <laughs> <laughs> this is absolutely, listen, this is absolutely the show for that. You're on with a rabbi, Gordon. Let's make it happen. So, <laughs> so I'll, I'll tell you, it's really for that reason that I fear that in eliminating from our national vocabulary notions of of biblical morality of 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 sin of repentance of idolatry and and trying to sanitize those things what what mainstream culture has sort of unwittingly done is taken away some of our most powerful tools for addressing things like this like in other words if we think about the terrible dynamics that you just described in terms of statistics and policy fixes and technocratic things so i think that that almost leaves us it leaves us falling short 
right? We, we need notions of sin, of repentance for sin, of idolatry and destroying idolatry. You know, my grandfather in many, many of his most famous sermons in the 70s, in, already in the 60s, he referred to racism in America as the great idolatry that we have a responsibility to stamp out. Do we need those concepts in order to, to address this fully and holistically? I think absolutely. What is our cultural standard of morality? And I think we've lost that. And what can we do to bring that back? You know, certainly in recent years, we've seen a a cult of personality. And whether that's on either side of the political spectrum, if we elect so-and-so, then then all our dreams are going to come true. And I'm sorry that that's not accurate. And it's also not biblical. Absolutely. You know, we've gotten into certainly a celebrity culture, but we've also gotten into a culture where it's okay if you can get away with it, which is really odd. Um, But I don't think we've lost, I call it a, uh, tried to invent words for these ideas. (laughs) And so I've come up with this sense that we have a basic biblical cosmology. I, I think people still think that there are consequences to actions. Um, that are eternal, and whether that's generationally eternal or eternal from a standpoint of heaven and hell, we still have that. We still have the notion that certain sins are wrong. You know, as much as we want to say, and that it's, it's become a very popular phrase, you can't legislate morality, and I'm going, well, absolutely you can, and it's called thou shalt not steal, yeah, that's and what- thou shalt not kill. <laughs> Um, these are our moral constructs in a very innate sense of justice. And when things happen and justice does not prevail, there is a sense of loss. So we still have that uh, biblical cosmology, but in um, practical application, we've lost it. And we've gone into this sort of relativistic morality, where if you're rich enough, you can get away with it. Or if you're famous enough, you can get away with it. You're not going to suffer consequences for your actions. And that's certainly been played out on a national scale with some pretty high-profile cases. So for the average person, well, if there's no consequence for them, why do I adhere to a standard of morality that doesn't seem to be any benefit or I'm missing out on the good stuff or I think we've lost that, and so how can we reestablish that? How, how can we reestablish just a, a, a sense of right and wrong? And going back to Polkville, how can we establish that we're good? And the first and foremost, that we act justly and we're good in what we do. So my last question for you, building on that, you know, I grew up in, uh, and I'm still, you know, deeply uh, enmeshed and part of and proudly a part of, you know, a deeply traditional Orthodox religious uh, Jewish community that has the courage of its convictions and is deeply rooted in a tradition of, of morality, of biblical morality. But because we've sort of been minorities in every single society that we've been in, and because this is the very first time that we've ever been in a society that not only tolerates us and even welcomes us, but actually sees the wisdom of which we are stewards, at least in part stewards, as foundational to our national ethos. So this is the first time we actually can even think about taking our wisdom and using it to impact the public square in a positive way. And we're, we're just not used to it. 
Now you are the leader of a major media organization that kind of does this as a matter of course. So what lessons should smaller or or maybe minority religious communities learn from from folks like yourself and communities like yours about taking our values and bringing them into the public square, not as a way to to proselytize or in a faith sense, but in a in a the republic still stands sense and in strengthening our republic. What lessons can we learn? Well, the the number one thing I've learned now working a quarter century in in Christian communication is the power of story. Mm. That preaching concepts or preaching statutes can have a place, but where you really move people is in the power of story. You know, I'll give you some history to it. We were looking at some Christian television in Cantonese coming out of Hong Kong, and this was Obviously, years ago, it wouldn't be legally possible anymore in China uh, today, but Oy. then it was, and, and you had repeater stations of the Hong Kong station, so you could pretty much cover southern China with a Cantonese broadcast, uh, and that's the language they speak. So we did a baseline survey, what do you know about Christianity, what, what do you know about the Bible? And it's kind of interesting coming back that the number one thing they associated with Christianity were, were weddings. and. In terms of Chinese history, there used to be, if you had enough money, you could have wife number one, number two, number three, number four. But it always led to extreme poverty, particularly for the children of wife number four. The the money would run out by the time they were old enough. And so it it led to these huge social problems. And and they saw the missionaries, and it was one man and one woman, and they thought that was a really good idea. So in our surveys, that's what they knew, uh, and that's pretty much all they knew. So at that point in time, and this is almost 20 years ago now, we were trying to reproduce 700 Club type programming, testimony programming with a prayer as our way of storytelling to lead to life change. And we had to revise that thinking because with people who have no idea of the Bible story, or even the concept of the Garden of Eden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and what does that mean to fall from that and how has God been trying to restore relationships so that we could be his people and he could be our God. Without that background, you literally had nothing to hold on to. You could have an experience, but without construct of it, you couldn't think your way to it, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. So from that, we, we, we came up with this wonderful idea. We had a, a cartoon series called Superbook, which was originally for Japan. And how do we educate a population on the stories of the Bible? And that thing has been the biggest communication success for us in our 60-year history that we're finding when people hear the stories of the Bible, and most of the stories are from the Tanakh. Most of the stories wow. are from the Old Testament. When they hear the stories of the Bible, they get it and they retain it. So I would encourage you, tell the story. I like the joke, the Jewish people have had the best stories for 4,000 years. And curiously, they still have the best stories today. That's <laughs> why so I like to do all the documentaries about Israel. They, you got great stories. <laughs> and the stories communicate. Understand, as God's chosen people, he didn't just choose your DNA. or He didn't just choose you because he knew Abraham would instruct his children, although that was a key part of it. He chose you because he knew he was then going to orchestrate your lives. 
these stories are divinely conducted. And just as I can't explain why my son feels at home in Israel, there's a conductor behind the scenes who's orchestrating these. These stories are divine, and they move people. So my advice, tell your stories and tell them again and again because the stories contain the message. Amen. Gordon Robertson, CEO of CBN, co-host of the 700 Club. Gordon, thank you so much for joining us. This was wonderful. All right. It's been great to be with you. Man, I really don't know what else to say after a conversation like that. Look, it's really simple. We have the tools to make our society better. We have the stories. We have the values. We have the awareness of our faults and our sins. We have the tools. All we need now is that sense of chosenness, that reminder that we have a responsibility to use those tools. And if we can, we'll be able to create a virtuous, flourishing society that our children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren will be proud of. This is Ari Lam making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Paul Ruest. This is a Joshua Network podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at thejoshuanetwork.com. The Joshua Network is now Soul Shop.